All right, let's go ahead and get our Bibles out. We have prayed God's Word and read God's Word, sung God's Word. Now let's let God speak to us through the preaching of His words. We are in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, just two verses this morning, verses 11 and 13. In your Black Pew Bible, you can look on page 987. And again, if you don't have a Bible, you're more than welcome to take that Bible home with you. And read it. (coughs) Andrew, would you close that door, brother? Thank you. Earlier this year, a London-based campaign group called Korea Future Initiative released a report on the religious persecution being experienced by Christians in North Korea. The report is based on extensive interviews with over 117 uh, exiles, those who have escaped the country. One man who was arrested after converting to Christianity was forced into a metal cage three feet high by four feet wide. He told the researchers that there were steel bars on all four sides that were heated with electricity. Usually prisoners, he says, lasted only three to four hours in the cage, but I sat there for 12 hours and I prayed, and I kept praying for God to save me. The report goes on to tell us that women suffered terrible treatment, including sexual violence and forced abortions. Uh, One witness went on to describe how pregnant women were forced, well, the details are not really appropriate for a public gathering. The report said that methods of torture included strangulation, Street sleep, deprivation, sleep deprivation, the use of stress positions, and pouring water laced with pepper down prisoners' nostrils. Prisoners were often executed by firing squad if they had been found guilty of owning a Bible, and others were killed for trying to smuggle pages torn out of a Bible from China into North Korea. About 12 years ago, Amber and I attended a conference put on by Voice of the Martyrs where there was a presentation by a man who had been working as a missionary in China to try to reach North Korea. And uh, he gave a presentation about many of these things before it was popular in the mainstream media to talk about these things. And uh, we were really struck by the weight of what our brothers and sisters were experiencing there in the Hermit Kingdom. And being young and naive, uh, right after the presentation, I went up to the guy and I said, what do we have to do to go be missionaries in North Korea? And very kindly, but very sternly, he said, you don't get into North Korea. Many have tried, most have died or suffered so terribly that nobody tries again. Okay. Then he went on to say, and he was very serious, he looked me in the eyes, he said, if you can't go... You can pray. Now in that moment, those words, they rang hollow to me. You know how it is to be young. You want to take action. You want to do something. You want to move. Don't just tell me to pray. Tell me what I can do. But friends, praying is not the same thing as doing nothing. As Christians, we believe that praying is actually doing something incredible. Saying that you're going to pray and then not praying Now, that's the same thing as doing nothing. But praying, going to God on behalf of people, that's not doing nothing. Paul understood this truth deep in his bones. You remember what we've learned so far in the book of 
Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, Paul very much wanted to get back to his people. He was desperate to continue the work of discipleship that he had begun with them as a missionary. He planted the church there. He wanted to go back and fill up, if you remember from chapter 3, verse 10, and last week, he says, uh, he, want, he prays earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply, fill up what is lacking in your faith. Paul's like, man, I want to get back to you guys and finish what I started. Nevertheless, he can't do it. Satan had prevented him from going back. So what is Paul to do? This morning's text, we see what Paul does. He prays. Paul says, if I can't be there with you in person, I can pray and ask God to be there with you and to do all the things that I can't do. Well, let's read Paul's prayer this morning, and then we'll pray, and then we'll dive in. Chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and all-sufficient word. Amen? Father, we pray that your word would build us up this morning. We pray that you would help us to increase in love and that we would be found blameless and holy at the day of your return. Amen. I have in my office a little black book that maybe nobody in this room has heard of, but maybe a select few, the, the Special Forces Reformed Christian World has heard of this. The, the, it's called The Valley of the Vision. It's a little black book uh, that's a compilation of prayers written by Puritans uh, over the course of several hundred years. And uh, it covers a number of different themes from sanctification to God's sovereignty to satanic oppression to on down the line. Now, here's the thing about this little black book. Most Christians, when they use it, they don't actually pray the prayers. They study them. They say, oh, here are these holy saints who have come before us, and these, these prayers are kind of the spiritual outflow of their sanctification. So let's read and study these prayers for our own strengthening, our own spiritual edification. Well, with that spirit in mind, friends, let's study Paul's prayer, this prayer that he prays for the Thessalonians. Let's study that together and see what riches God has for us. So first, let's look at who Paul is addressing in this prayer. Now, you may be thinking, Sean, that's a little, a little silly, huh? Who, who's Paul addressing? I mean, don't we all address God when we pray? Isn't he the main one we address? Well, yes. But what's very interesting about this prayer is that when Paul addresses God, he addresses both the Father and the Son. In verse 11, you'll notice that Paul petitions the Father and the Son to direct his way back to the Thessalonians. Then in verse 12, when you'll notice the same language, verse 11 says, may the God and Father, and then in verse 12 it says, may the Lord, okay? In verse 12, Paul asks Jesus to increase the love of the Thessalonians. Paul addresses his petition to both the Father and the Son. Now, if this way of praying, talking about God the Father and Jesus in the same breath, if that's not shocking to you, well, it's because you're a Christian. You have to remember that praying like this would have been very strange to a monotheistic Jew who had not come to believe that Jesus was, in fact, the Son of God. 
you remember that Judaism is a monotheistic religion. They believe in one God. Christianity believes in one God. It was so built into the fabric of, of who they were that they had to recite the Shema, which is, in Deuteronomy 6, it's kind of a, a rudimentary statement of faith given by God to the Israelites. And they were supposed to say this every day. And one of the things that they were supposed to say is, Hear, O Israel, like pay attention, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We don't worship two gods. We don't worship three gods. We're not Hindus. We don't worship a legion of gods. We worship one God. The monotheism of Judaism is likely the reason why Paul was so intently persecuting early Christians. He probably perceived these earlier Christians to be trying to take Judaism from a place of monotheism to polytheism, from worshiping one God to multiple gods. All these Christians were going around worshiping Jesus as God, and he's like, what are you doing? You're supposed to be Jews. This is not okay. Now, here's the thing about monotheists. When they pray, they only pray to one person, God. And when they petition, they only petition one person, God. And yet Paul, in this morning's text, this monotheistic Jew who had been saved by Christ, he prays and he asks God to move on his behalf. And when he does, he addresses both the Father and the Son. And this would have been utterly scandalous if Jesus was in fact not God. This kind of language in prayer would have been just as scandalous as the way that Jesus worded the Great Commission. Again, you're Christians. You probably have never thought about the Great Commission. You've never thought about it in the light that it might be horrendously offensive to someone. But listen to the language. Jesus says to his disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father. Okay, all the Jews are like, yeah, we're good. Okay. The Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus, include, is, Jesus and the Holy Spirit are included in the same breath as our God and Father. Friends, to add the name of Son and Holy Spirit to the name of Yahweh would have been blasphemous. You don't get to add your name or anyone else's name to the name of God if you're a monotheistic Jew. That's the reason why when Jesus had one of his encounters with the religious leaders, and he says, before Abraham was, I am, invoking the name of Yahweh as he disclosed himself in the book of Exodus, even before Abraham was, I am, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. He's doing the same kind of thing. And it's blasphemy if Jesus is, in fact, not God. Moreover, in this prayer, we see Paul asking Jesus to do two things that only God can do. The first thing is he's asking Jesus to direct his path. Friends, God so organizing our destiny so that we move down a certain path, that's something that only God can do. It's not something that angels can do. It's not something that demons can do. As much as political leaders like to think that they can do it, they can't. This is something that only God can do. That's the reason why Proverbs 69, for example, says that the heart of a man plans his way, right? The man thinks, oh, I can direct my path, right? I got this. The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. So who can clear the path for Paul? Only God can. And Paul says, Jesus, clear my path. The second thing that he asked for is to change someone's heart or to change a people's heart. 
to increase love in the heart of the Thessalonians. That's what he says. He says, increase their love so that they may be abounding in love. Again, this is something that only God can do. Angels can't change people's hearts. Demons can't change people's hearts. Man cannot change his own heart as much as we like to think that we can. It's keeping an entire industry afloat in psychiatry and psychology. We like to think that we can change our own hearts, but those of us who have tried and who have been honest with ourselves about the results have found it an extremely difficult experience. We can't even begin to understand the most ample contours of our hearts much less can we change them. And Paul says, Lord Jesus, I need you to change their heart, to give them more ability to love. You know, love is a fruit of the Spirit, right? And the, the, the reason why fruits of the Spirit are called fruits of the Spirit is because these are attributes, virtues, whatever, that God alone can increase. He is the one who affects our heart by his spirit to give us more of these things. So when Paul says, I want my people to be more loving, he goes, only God can do this. Jesus, I need you to move. I need you to help. I need you to take action. All right, let me uh, pause right here. and Can I pepper you guys with a little application before we move on? Uh, what, I, what I want you to see right here is that our ability to love is something that God can change. That seems like an obvious implication, but maybe it's not to you. Some people, when we think about love, we think about it as something that's kind of static. You know, it's a muscle that we either have or we don't. It's like fast-twitch muscle fibers in your hamstrings, you know, or it's like being double-jointed. You either have it or you don't. You can either do it or you can't. Some people are more loving. Some people are just bitter old men like Walter Matthau and grumpy old men. Reference no one gets, I'm sure. I want to encourage you this morning, brothers and sisters, that if you are struggling to love, God can help you with that. I think this prayer is here in the Bible as an example to teach us that not only can God help us with these things, but he wants us to go to him and to ask him to help us with these things. To not look within ourselves, but to look to him. So if you're struggling to love your fellow church members, which even in a church as totally awesome as ours may happen from time to time. Someone may say or do something. You'll be offended. You'll be sinned against. Maybe it'll be your own sin. That's, you're struggling. I just can't. I can't love the body. I can't love this person. You can go to God and ask him to help you with that. If you know of someone in the church who's loving to, struggling to love someone else in the church or struggling to love the church, you can encourage them, you can show them Bible verses, you can do all that stuff, but you can also pray for them and say, God, please help them to love the body. If you're struggling to love your spouse, you can go to God. If you're struggling to love the lost, you can go to God. If you're struggling to love your enemies, right? That's still part of what we do as Christians, yeah? Even if they're like our political enemies, right? Even if like we have theological differences with them, we're supposed to love them. And it's hard. Sometimes it's really hard. Not for people to love me. But I'm trying to imagine what it would be like for somebody else. It's hard. Even if you're struggling to love God, if you're feeling cold, distant, alone, you can go to God and say, God, help me to love you. 
renew the joy of my salvation that I felt when I first came to know you. Or if you've never really loved God and you feel like, man, I do want to love God. I see everyone else around me so happy as they love God, but I just, ugh. You can go to God and you can ask him to help you. If there's anything in this world that I know that God wants to do, it's to help you to love him more. Friends, do not look in yourself for the ability to increase your love for others. You will not find any strength there. You will not find any capacity. Jonathan Edwards, this is one of two Jonathan Edwards illustrations this morning, so if you want to put it in your notes, here's number one. He talks about the source of love, and he says that God is the source of love in the same way that the sun is our source of light. He talks about the moon and how the moon may light up, and the moon may, in fact, give us light in the evening. But within the moon itself, there is no light. The the moon merely reflects the light of the sun. But the sun contains light within itself. That's what love is like. God is the source of love. He is burning white hot since eternity's past with a superabundance of love. We can't produce that, but we can be the moon. We can reflect the love that he gives to us and we can send it out to others. A man once said to Jesus, I believe, Lord, but help my unbelief. You ever felt that way before? Amen. We can say the same thing with love. I do love, God, I do. But I need you to help me. Help me to love more. Okay, back to this divinity of Jesus. What we see in this morning's prayer is just a tiny pebble on a massive rocky mountain of biblical evidence that Jesus is very God of very God. Now, before moving on from this point, uh, I want to give you a little application point as far as evangelism and apologetics goes. Um, Sometimes when we want to defend a particular doctrine or truth of Scripture, like the divinity of Jesus, uh, we can really get lost in the weeds. We can start having debates about, you know, Greek exegesis and which manuscripts are most reliable and arguing over semantics. And listen, those arguments are fine. We need guys who have been highly trained in very specific ways to carry out these debates, you know. Praise God for like the James Whites of the world who do that kind of thing. But uh, I want you to know that you can defend the truth of the gospel just by learning how to read your Bible well. Did I do any Greek exegesis in this text to show you that Jesus is God? Did I do any textual criticism? Did I, did, I, did I have to have an advanced degree in order to show you from God's word that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God? No. I just, I just, I just know how to read my Bible well. Amen. And, and listen, you don't have to go to seminary to do that. Proof right here, right? You just learn to read your Bibles well. Okay. Now, we should note that God is not the only audience that Paul is addressing in this prayer. You have to remember that this is a public prayer. I know it may not seem like a public prayer because it's written in a book of the Bible that was a letter, but you have to set this letter in its historical context. This letter would have been read out loud to the entire church at Thessalonica, likely in a Sunday service on the Lord's Day. Somebody, maybe the senior pastor, would have stood up and read this letter in its entirety. And as he got to this point in the letter, he might have even stopped and said, and now let's pray. 
And these words would have been prayed publicly before the congregation. Here I just want to make the simple point that we've said about music before, but maybe you've never thought about with prayer. All public prayer has two audiences. First God, and then one another. Just like singing. You remember? Paul says, sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another. Okay? Who's the first person we're singing to? Well, we're singing to God, but also we're singing to one another. And you can really feel that when, like, the music drops out and we're all just whoo, booming with one voice and we feel mutually encouraged and strengthened by the words that we sing to each other. Well, the same thing is true of our prayers. So if you're here and you're a visitor or maybe you're a member and you're wondering, why do they pray prayers that are like pre-written like that? Well, it's, it's not because we want to be as boring as possible. Sometimes we don't do pre-written prayers. But the main reason why we do it is because we understand that our audience is not only God but one another. And we want to make sure that we pray prayers that are edifying and instructive for the saints. My, my hope is that, like as Grant Miller comes up and prays an exemplary prayer, that you, the members of this congregation, are not only strengthened and encouraged as you pray along with him, but also that you're trained and that you learn how to pray. When I first got to this church, I cannot tell you how many conversations I had with people who were so embarrassed to pray in public, and it, when I'd get down to the bottom of it, it was, I just don't know how to pray. Nobody's ever taught me to pray. Okay, well, let me tell you, if nobody ever in the life of this church sits down with you and says, okay, here are the mechanics of prayer, just by being a member of this church, sitting in on Sunday morning services, you should learn how to pray. All right. Now, let's dig into the content of this prayer a little bit more. First, Paul asked God to direct him back to the Thessalonians. We're not going to talk about that very much this morning because we talked about that at length Last week, but I do want to show you one thing. In chapter 2, verse 18, Paul says that it was Satan who prevented him from returning to the Thessalonians. Go there and look there, just so we can have a refresher. He says, Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. So Satan is the one that hindered Paul from getting back to the Thessalonians. But you'll notice in this morning's prayer, that does, in, does not in any way stop Paul from praying and asking God to send him back to the Thessalonians. According to Paul, the main determining factor for God's plan for his life is not Satan and his little petty interferences. The main determining factor for Paul's life and ministry is the sovereign hand of God. God may, in his wisdom, for a time, allow Satan to run those petty interferences, but Paul knows. He doesn't know the outcome. He doesn't know for a fact that he's going to get back to Thessalonica, but Paul knows that if God so chooses, he can put the kibosh on that in an instant. And so he prays and he says, God, would you take me back? I don't know what you feel like Satan is doing in your life, what kind of petty hindrances you may be experiencing as you try to share the gospel with your friends and family and neighbors, as you try to build up your own spiritual strength. But I want you to know that you can go to God in prayer and ask him to crush Satan and all of his activity in your life. I'm not saying that God will automatically do it in the timing that we would want him to do it, in the exact way that we'll do it, but you can pray with a kind of confidence knowing that God has the ability to do it. And yeah, I think that's pretty encouraging for your prayer life. Okay, the second thing that Paul petitions God for in this text is that God would increase the love of the Thessalonian Christians. We've talked about that, but let's, let's look at chapter 3, verse 12 again. He says, And may the Lord, that's Jesus, 
make you increase and abound in love, right? So like, imagine you got a glass here, you're pouring, and then when it gets to the brim, it just keeps going, abounding, overflowing, okay? In love for one another and for all, as we do for you. So Paul says, listen, I love you guys so much, and I want God to help you to love as much as I love. That's his second petition. Now this is a interesting that's the adjective we use when we don't know what other word to use. This is an interesting thing for Paul to pray because in chapter 3, verse 6, Paul already told us that he had received good news from Timothy that they were doing great with love. Go back to chapter 3, verse 6. He says, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love, right? So, okay, they're doing good, they're loving. And if you look in chapter 4, verses 9 through 10, Paul uses even stronger language of affirmation. Go there, chapter 4, verses 9 through 10. He says, now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. That's a significant thing to say. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Very strong language. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia, so Paul says, listen, you guys are crushing it. When it comes to love, you guys are on top of it. And given the fact that the greatest command is to love God and love your neighbors, it seems like this is a big deal. The Thessalonians are doing well. And yet when Paul prays for the Thessalonians, he prays and asks God to give them even more love. There's a lot that can be said about that, like, don't ever think that just because you're loving enough, patient enough, kind enough, gentle enough, that like you've got enough of that fruit of the Spirit and you don't need any more of it. Uh, nobody in this room will ever, 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 it's going to get annoying, right? Ever max out on any of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. So don't, you know, think about them in that way. But, but what I really want us to look at is... is it's the reason why Paul wants them to increase in love. Well, you can see the answer when you read verses 12 and 13 together. So you see in verse 12, he has the petition. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. And then verse 13, so that. Uh, that so that language there is very important. Why does Paul want the Thessalonians to increase in love? So that he, Christ, may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. The reason why Paul wants them to increase in love is so that they will increase in holiness. That's Paul's logic. In Paul's mind, Christians who are increasing in love are Christians that are also necessarily increasing in holiness. Now, uh, let's not assume definitions here. Let's all stop and remember what holiness is. Holiness is being distinct, set apart for a special purpose. Particularly as Christians, we're set apart for God. If that concept is kind of out there in the clouds for you, think about uh, your grandma's fine china that she only brings out for special guests. Or think about your mom, if you had this kind of mom, who had special towels that nobody was allowed to use, only the guests, right? Those were her holy towels, okay? Distinct, special, set apart. Nobody gets to touch this. It's a very, you know, yeah, we're, we're, this is a sanctified set of towels here, okay? That's what holiness is like. And God wants his people to be holy even as he is holy. 
Now, let's ask another question. Why does Paul want the Thessalonians to be holy? He said, okay, why does he want them to, to grow in love so that they'd be holy? But why does he want them to be holy? Why is that so important to him? Well, you can see at the end of verse 13. He says, so that they'll be ready when our God and Father arrives, right? At the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of the saints. Now, there's a little wordplay going on here that you're, you're probably going to miss reading your English Bibles, and it's because of the word saints. That's the word, we, we translate it like that in English, but if you were to read this in the Greek, that's just hagioi. It's just uh, the holy one. So Paul says, I want you guys to be holy so that you can join with all the holy ones. What Paul is saying is, I want you to be prepared to enter into God's holy people. I want you to practice, to live out, to rehearse today, right here, right now. I want you to prepare for the day when you enter into the fullness of holiness with the rest of God's people. I wonder, brothers and sisters, if you ever think about the last day like that. I know that our minds have all been like polluted by like, what was that book series in the movies? You know, the, the, you know you're going to be in bed, your wife's going to be gone. Huh? Left Behind series and the, and the movie and all that stuff. And when we think about the last day, and I don't want to offend anybody if you love those books, but uh, I wonder if you ever think about the coming of Christ as being ushered into holiness, as being united into the fullness of God's holy people. I think that that's what the Bible says is going to happen. We're going to enter into the brilliance of the holiness of God along with the entire body of Christ. Second Jonathan Edwards illustration, he makes a similar point about love and heaven in one of his sermons on heaven. He says this. Now, listen, he's using kind of old-timey language. I tried to clean it up a little bit, but everybody put on your, your thinking caps and your listening ears and try to pay attention to this, okay? He says, On that day, their hearts shall be full of love. That's the day that they get to heaven. That which was in the heart on earth as but a grain of mustard seed, their love, just like a tiny grain of mustard seed, shall be as a great tree in heaven. The soul that in this world had only a little spark of divine love in it, in heaven shall be turned into a bright and ardent flame, like the sun in its fullest brightness, when it has no spot upon it. Edward says, the love that you have now, it's so tiny. It's like a little mustard seed. But one day, it's going to be a big tree. It's like a tiny spark. You can barely see it. But one day, it's going to be a roaring fire. The same thing is true of our holiness. Right now, as we strive to be holy, even as our God is holy, what we have is just a little minuscule, the holiest person in this room has the tiniest minuscule of a flame of holiness. But one day, God will call us into the middle of the sun. And we will experience the kind of holiness that we have not known, that we could not have even begun to imagine. And we will experience that with all of God's people. Now, I cannot tell you how often... uh, One of my spiritual gifts is evangelism. I don't think I'm very talented at it. I just don't mind embarrassing myself. So I have a lot of very awkward conversations with unbelievers. 
And one of the themes that kind of always comes up as I try to share Christ with people is, is that they just don't want to have anything to do with all that Jesus stuff here and now. Most of them do hope to get to heaven, but when it comes to Jesus and holiness here and now, doing away with the things of this world, embracing the things of Christ, they just don't want that, but they do want heaven. And what I try to tell them when I can remember, when I'm doing my best in evangelism, is that, listen, if you don't love Jesus now, if you don't love holiness now, you won't want to be in heaven. Heaven is a world of holiness. So if you don't want holiness now, if your heart doesn't yearn for holiness, if you don't strive for holiness now, when you get to heaven, it will be more like the horrors of hell to you. Now, one more question needs to be answered before we kind of wrap this whole thing up, which means I have 45 minutes left. <laughs> How does growing in love increase our holiness? Because that's, that's Paul's logic, right? Grow in love, therefore you'll be found prepared and holy on the day of Christ's return. Now, in order to answer this question, we need to stop and take a minute and make sure, again, we define our terms. What is love? Well, you know, the Greeks, you know, this kind of love and that kind of love. This biblical concept of agape love, the love of God that he's shown to us, that we show to one another, distilled down to its simplest definition, which theologians would probably quibble with, but I think it's okay for this morning's sermon, is putting the needs of others before your own. Serving others more than you serve yourself. Caring for others more than you care for yourself. You tell me if you think that that definition of love makes sense in light of, uh, well, in light of how John talks about love here. He says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Or maybe Paul in Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us. Okay, here's love. It's this concept. It's out here. Hard for us to understand in our sin. How can we see it? How can we, how can we touch it, feel it, taste it, savor it, understand it? God shows us his love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He gave himself up for us. Now, at a practical level, think about how this understanding of love will make you more holy. In every single way, how could it not make you more holy? When the world reviles, you serve and you bless. And that sets you apart as holy. When the world demands to be served, you take the posture of a servant. People go, what is going on with that? Distinct. Holy. When others pursue glory, you pursue meekness. When fallen men fight and scratch and claw and lie to have their own way, you follow Christ and you give way. That shows you to be holy. When you truly love people in the way that God has loved you in Christ, with this sacrificial love, this self-giving love, you will be holy. And you will increase in holiness. Let me give you an example of this, okay? I have a friend who's a lawyer in Washington, D.C., one of the top hundred lawyers in the world, according to him, top five, but whatever. You can't be the top hundred if you don't think that about yourself. He's a Christian, a very faithful Christian, and uh, one day, one of his junior law partners stormed into the office, and she was crying and uh, distraught and screaming, I'm not going to sleep with you. I don't care this and that. I'm not doing it. I'm not going to sleep my way to the top. 
and he just goes, what are you talking about? And she goes, I know what you're trying to do. I know, I, I understand, you're not going to do it, I'm not going to do it this way. And he goes, I, I have no interest in that. What happened was, he was loving her so well as a boss, serving her so sacrificially, championing her career in the way that people in the law profession just don't do, especially at the highest levels of lawyering, I guess. The, you know, it's, 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 you know, blood in the water. It's a dog-eat-dog world, sharks, you know. And in the midst of that, he went out of his way to love and to serve someone who had never experienced anything like that. And she was so confused by this love. She couldn't make sense of it. But in loving her in that way, he marked himself as distinct from this world. He showed himself to be holy. This morning's text is a very powerful one. Talking about holiness is not easy. You see, there's a very difficult balancing act. On the one hand, growing in holiness does require something from us. You have to do something. Do not listen to these people who tell you that holiness is, is something that Christ does from first to last and you just have to be a passive recipient. No. In this morning's text, you see that we actually do have to love and love actually does require sacrifice. It requires action on your part. But on the other hand, if we focus too much of, on, on, on our ability to contribute to our holiness, well then, friends, you'll end up like a Pharisee. You'll end up a legalist. You'll take a burden on yourself and you'll put a burden on others that you can't carry, that God never designed for anyone to carry. You'll build fences around fences around fences for the law. And this morning's text shows us that even our holiness is informed, upheld, and energized by God and his grace. Right? Trace my logic real quick. Trace my logic from what Paul prays. Increased holiness is the result of increased love. And increased love is the result of God's grace in our hearts. So ultimately, ultimately, our holiness depends on God's grace. This is the difficult balancing act of Christianity. God's grace on the one hand, man's responsibility on the other. It's a tight rope, but we have to walk it. If you had to guess what verse I would go to to show that to you, I wonder what you would guess. Philippians 2, you guessed right. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, it's your responsibility, you have to obey God's law, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You have to work. And you have to work in such a way that you take it very seriously. Your heart is troubled by these things. You're, you're fearful. You're trembling when you think about your eternity. It's a big deal. It weighs you down. Four, it is God who works in you. You work. You work out your salvation. You fear. You tremble. Four, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You work your holiness, but you have to trust that God is the one who's working underneath your working. Friends, if you try by your own power and in your own strength to pursue holiness, the holiness that you need to be received by Jesus on the last day, 
you will find it wholly unreliable, insufficient. But if you trust in Christ and his holiness, then you will be received into the company of the saints. You see, friends, I'm thinking about, I'm, I'm trying not to say bad things about other churches in public, but I do want to say true things about other churches in public because I know it to be true. In this city, in this county, in this state, across this country, across the globe, there are Christians sitting in churches just like this where men are standing in pulpits just like I am and the message that they preach is that you have to do more and try harder in order to be accepted by God. And I'm here to tell you that if you believe that to be true, you may not be a Christian. And if you are a Christian, you will limp your way all the way to heaven. The gospel says something so much more incredible than you have to try harder and do better for God, your Father, to love you and accept you. The gospel says you cannot be holy. The gospel says that you are dead in sin. You're set apart to this world, not to God. You're filthy. You're unclean. You're like the dishes that anybody in the house can use. You're like the towel that's been used a hundred times over and then left on the bathroom floor. That's what your sin does to you. You're not holy in any way. And the more you try to be holy, the worse it gets. But God didn't leave us in this sad state. No, he sent his son, the only man since Adam, and Adam couldn't even do it, to live a perfectly righteous life to be truly distinct and set apart from this world. And he lived that perfectly righteous, holy life for us. And then he gave his life up for us on the cross. He was put to death by unholy men. Now, friends, the sweet promise of the gospel is that if you will quit trying to have your own holiness and you just trust in Christ and his holiness, then holiness can be yours. If I could summarize this morning's text in one sentence that would really highlight the grace of the gospel for you, I think it would be this. God is preparing us for God. Let's pray. Father, we love you with a love that's imperfect, but we know that you can help us to love you more. We want to reflect your glory by being holy in the same way that you are holy. And we know that we are not doing a good job of that, but with your help, we can do better. So we lean on you and we trust in you as we move forward. In your son's name we pray. Amen.